This is my version of the truth as best as I can remember it. So it's one of many truths in this story. I'm Sarah Lestrange and this is Fakes and Frauds. In this final episode in the series, we're going back to the Wanda Kulmatri hoax. In 1993, Magabala Books, a small Indigenous publishing house in the remote town of Broome in Western Australia's Kimberley region, received a manuscript from an Indigenous writer. Its title was My Own Sweet Time. So I can remember coming back off holidays when I had first started at Magabala Books and the then managing publisher Peter Bibby had said to me, look, I have got this wonderful fiction book that you can work on. Please come in and sit down. And, um, you know, it can be one of the manuscripts that you train on to get experience for fiction. So I said, yep, no worries. Rachel Binsala is now publisher at Magabala Books, but was new to publishing at the time and was training as a project editor. And I am a Bunaba and Yaru woman from Broome. Magabala was excited. This manuscript was different. And even though it had been rejected by two other publishing houses, maybe, just maybe, it would be the next Australian classic along the lines of my place, the acclaimed autobiography by Sally Morgan about the author's discovery of her Indigenous heritage. In some ways, My Own Sweet Time was very much a departure from the works that we had previously published over the years, including works of fiction, the early fiction that Mugabala did in the mid to early 90s. But Wanda Kulmatri's My Own Sweet Time wasn't fiction, it was memoir. I actually didn't mind the read. I thought it was accessible, easy to read. Uh, Wanda had a sense of humour, also Wanda had a sense of adventure. Wanda was just able to call her life out as she saw it and as she wrote it. So I didn't necessarily have a problem with it at the time, but, you know, I was in my early 20s back then, and so what I know then, I know differently now. My Own Sweet Time tells the story of Wanda Kulmatri's life. She was removed from her Aboriginal mother in 1950 and raised by white foster parents in Adelaide. She was one of the stolen generation. And the memoir charts her move to Melbourne and Sydney in the late 60s, where she fell in with hippie counterculture and started songwriting. And this is from the beginning of My Own Sweet Time. By six years old, I'd picked up a handful of stunts, bawling out for milk and porridge, recognising animals and visitors, Responding to my parents with coyness, indifference, enthusiasm, whatever, cause and effect were tumbling into a pattern. One thing puzzled me, though. Mum and Dad and the few people who came to the house were all white. I knew no other children. I was certainly growing, but I stayed black. Would I fade or what? The book felt fresh and new. It was presenting a different perspective on Indigenous experiences. And it was considered so promising that Indigenous academic of Kalkadoon heritage, Philip Morrissey, was called on to give a reader's report for Magabala Books. 
The publishers often send out manuscripts to people with some sort of expertise in the area and ask for their comments before they decide to publish. So, you know, I said, if I didn't know any better, I'd have doubts as to whether it was written by an Indigenous person. It was just so different. I'd teach it, uh, things I liked about it. You know, there were aspects of it which didn't seem to be developed. But otherwise, I was very positive. Magabala had high hopes for this book, and they organised the book launch when it was published in 1994. However, the author couldn't make it to the launch, and it was the first of many no-shows. But poet and activist Roberta Sykes launched My Own Sweet Time in Wanda's Place. Philip Morrissey went on to teach the book at the University of Melbourne as an example of Indigenous memoir. For him, it represented a significant shift in Indigenous writing. The breakthrough publication, I think, had been my place. There'd been the wonderful plays of Jack Davis, which were fabulous as well. Alexis and Kim Scott were starting to write, Alexis Wright and Kim Scott. But I, I think the dominant mode of writing had been life narratives, which were valuable. And there'd been, a, I think, a little bit of decline in fiction. So the, my, my own sweet time, though it wasn't fiction, had that element of freedom which you envision, which you expect in fiction, which is why I was interested in it as well. And I was a little bit pessimistic. Was Aboriginal writing, you know, had it been passed by as an art form? So along comes my own sweet time to reinvigorate the genre. I remember reading it. I was doing my PhD on Aboriginal literature and publishing, so it would have been uh, sometime in 1996. That's Anita Heiss, Wiradjuri writer, author, activist and poet of over 20 books. I remember thinking that there wasn't for a memoir about an Aboriginal person, male or female, there wasn't a lot of political activity in the book. One part of the of the memoir that was situated in Newtown, and I thought it was really odd that there was no references to Redfern, which is literally across the road. Redfern is an inner city suburb of Sydney, an area synonymous with Indigenous activism for rights and self-determination. However, the book was getting good reviews and then it was shortlisted for its first book prize, the 1996 Dobby Literary Award, an award for the best first book by an Australian female writer. It then went on to win, which was surprising for Muggabola in lots of different ways because, once again, we are so outside the mainstream. And at that time, especially in First Nations publishing, for something to translate as a universal story uh, for us was also caught us by surprise and also was a validation of the actual writing of who Wanda was and her life story as well. So we were thrilled with that and we were thrilled for Wanda. But just as she didn't attend her book launch, Wanda Kulmatri didn't show up to accept the award either. In fact, it was accepted on behalf of Wanda by Lydia Miller, then Director of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Arts Board. More accolades were rolling in too, and it was also shortlisted for the lauded New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. But despite this recognition, Philip Morrissey was concerned that the book wasn't getting the media attention it deserved. And I guess if we had the author who actually attended, you know, writers' festivals and did some press interviews, it might have got going. But Wanda Kulmatri was consistently a no-show and her publisher, Magabala Books, were having trouble contacting her too. 
Wanda didn't turn up, so Wanda, we never spoke to Wanda, we actually never saw Wanda, Wanda never really wrote to us. And I don't know about you, but after a period of time, it's kind of like, you know, you could smell something was not quite right. University of Melbourne academic Philip Morrissey was feeling increasingly uneasy, and so he decided to follow up with the publisher again. I got in touch with Magabala again and asked quite detailed questions about the author very detailed, and uh, they'd been in touch and tried to meet the, the so-called author, Wanda Coolmartry, but had never been able to do it. Magabala publisher Rachel Binsala says they kept trying to meet the author, but to no avail. So John Bailey would ring up occasionally and I would talk to John. Sydney-based John Bailey was Wanda's literary agent and the primary contact for Rachel Binsala for all things Wanda. And I would literally be laughing on the phone to John and saying, John, just come clean. We know Wanda doesn't exist. Who is Wanda? You know, all of these different things. Oh, no, no, Wanda exists. And and why can't we meet Wanda? And, you know, Wanda wants her second book published, not without meeting Wanda. Oh, no, Wanda doesn't want to be met. And so we would have these discussions with John Bailey saying, why doesn't Wanda want to be meet us? You know, we don't have two heads. And John was giving us excuses, uh, things like, Wanda can't meet you because Wanda's just recently been diagnosed with MS. And I was like, oh, OK, that's a good enough reason not to meet us. OK, um, why can't Wanda meet us now? We could go to her. She doesn't have to come to us. It doesn't have to be stressful. No, um, look, Wanda's now travelling around Australia in a red combi van. And then it came out, a bolt out of the loot. no. Wanda has left for London. You wouldn't believe it, but Wanda's married an Algerian and she's having a wedding in Algeria. And John said, look, I'm really sorry. This is what Wanda does. She just goes off and does these random things. Wanda has MS. Wanda is travelling around Australia in a red combi. Wanda has just married an Algerian. There were so many excuses but none of it added up to her editor at the time, Rachel Binsala. The Wanda that we knew would never call attention to herself by driving around Australia in a red combi van, of all things, because the Wanda from the book and the Wanda that had been presented to us, who pretty much was, you know, a loner, uh, you know, didn't want to leave the house, all of those things, exceptionally shy, you know, didn't want the accolades. So all of these things that they were telling us psychologically about what Wanda was doing didn't, started to not ring true. But then finally, they're given a contact. And the publishing director of Magabala Books, the late Bruce Sims, made the call. So John gave Bruce a number in London, which he then called, which was a lovely lady with a posh English accent. And they had this really, and I, I sat next to Bruce listening to the conversation, had this really wonderful conversation. And Bruce puts down the phone and he looks at me and I look at him and it's kind of like, and? And he said, hmm, we'll see. It seems, you know, that Wanda does exist. And it was like, oh, okay, no worries. Meanwhile, Wanda Kulmatri had a second book called Door to Door, waiting to be published. Magabala had received this manuscript in 1996, but had demanded to meet Wanda before publishing it. 
They told her literary agent, John Bailey, that if they couldn't meet Wanda, they wouldn't publish her book. John Bailey tried to get the sequel published elsewhere, but he didn't have any luck. So he tried again with Magabala. However, they held firm. They wanted to meet Wanda Kulmatri, but they never did get to meet her. John Bailey went to the press instead. And on the 13th of March, 1997, that's three years after the book was published, the Daily Telegraph newspaper reported on the Great White Hoax. And now to the latest scandal to hit Australia's artistic world. Following in the steps of Helen Darville Demidenko comes the work of Wanda Kulamatri. Well, now it's been revealed that, unknown to the publisher, Wanda Kulamatri is herself a work of fiction. And the hand that wrote her work belongs to Leon Carmen, a 47-year-old white man. Oh, my God! I couldn't believe that anyone would actually go to such lengths to perpetuate a hoax. You could have knocked me over with a feather duster. Who, who does this stuff? John Bailey, Wanda's supposed literary agent, and Leon Carmen, a Sydney taxi driver from Adelaide, were friends, and they had cooked up the fake memoir and its fake author to take a swipe at the rise of identity politics in publishing. Supposedly, it was to show that an ordinary bloke a white bloke in their terms could actually write something which was worthy of publication, but in order to get published, it'd have to be presented as a minority figure, in this case, an Indigenous woman. But how did they get away with the lies for so long? They worked a system. Um, they told blatant lies. It was a genuine fraud. It wasn't, uh, as people sometimes wanted to believe, there are a lot of gullible people in working in Aboriginal literature. You know, it wasn't like that at all. This was a, a fraud which was intricate and deeply planned. Philip Morrissey had lent his support to this book and had used it as a teaching text at university. Anita Heiss was one of Magabala's signed authors at the time and had been asked to accept the Dobby Literary Award for My Own Sweet Time on Wanda's behalf. Anita was so relieved that she'd turned the opportunity down. I remember watching, uh, I, I believe it was a current affair with Yarn Event, I remember watching the night that Leon Carmen outed himself on national television as the white male taxi driver who imposted himself as Wanda Kumatri and then listening to him defend himself by claiming that he you know, perpetrated the fraud to show that there were no differences between black and white writing, all men's and women's writing. And, of course, we now, you know, all those things that I thought became absolutely true and I was so pleased that I hadn't accepted that award because I, I would have, I know I would have felt like some kind of accessory. I remember thinking back at the time, well, you know what, all the literary establishment ever wanted was a black person who could write like a white person and they thought they got it in Wanda Kormachi. In, in fact, what they did get was a white person that wrote like a white person. So I imagine the judges had egg on their face as well. One of the claims Leon Carmen and John Bailey made was that it was easier to get published as an Aboriginal woman than as a white man. But Anita Heiss disputes this. It was absolutely not true. I mean, I know, if not dozens, hundreds of Aboriginal people who have manuscripts who have never been able to get published. I was knocked back by every major publishing house in the country before I was picked up by Magabala Books. 
Rachel Bensala and her colleagues at Magabala Books were made to look foolish by the hoax. And with hindsight, they realised how they'd been duped. You know, one of the responses that we had thought, you know, how did Wanda feel when she won the award? Was she really happy? It's absolutely fantastic for a First Nations and Aboriginal first time creator to be able to get an award like this. This is fantastic. And John came back and said, no, Wanda couldn't believe that she had just won a woman's award. And in hindsight, it was kind of like, of course, that is a typical response from a failed male writer. When they learnt of the hoax, Magabala Books pulled the pin and stopped distribution of the book. However, Rachel Binsala did tell us that they themselves were having doubts about Wanda Kulmatri's story, so why didn't they look into it further? Well, in those days at Magabala, we pretty much ran on the smell of an oily rag. So, you know, we had to get grants to get computers. We had secondhand desks. We didn't have any like new chairs. And for anybody from Magabala to be able to get on an airplane to go to the East Coast or to be able to track this down, it was going to cost a lot of money. We just did not have the infrastructure and the connections at the time that we do now. And you don't know what you don't know until it actually explodes in your face. You don't want to say anything because you also don't want to make sure that you don't malign a writer who who is, for whatever reason, in a vulnerable situation. So there was, you know, all these different balancing acts going on. And you don't ever in a million years think that there is somebody out there that wants to impersonate an Aboriginal woman writer. You know, it was just a stretch too far um, to think that somebody would lie about those things because like why would anybody lie about their identity because you know that's not who you are when news of the hoax broke it was deja vu as it was only two years since the helen demodenko scandal that i covered in another episode of fakes and frauds just like his author alter ego wanda leon carmen was elusive ABC reporters couldn't get him to talk, but they did manage to get hold of his rather bewildered mother. Did you know that he'd written a novel? No, I didn't know. Um, I just knew that, um, as I said to him, what do you do all day? Because I knew he didn't have a job. And he said, oh, I write. I just write. But I didn't know what he wrote or you know, anything about it, really. He's always been pretty brainy. He's always been pretty brainy? Yes. You know, but I used to say to him, you don't do much with it. And he said, oh, I, I do all right. You know, as I say, he never talks very much. He's very much for himself. But, uh, and he used to do poetry a bit, but he didn't get very far with it, I don't think. But um, I'm absolutely amazed. In another way, I'm not surprised, because I know he could do it. Would you have preferred if he'd used his proper name, if he'd used his real name on the jacket of the novel? It would have been nice, I suppose, but I suppose that's up to him. I don't know why he didn't. On the 15th of March, 1997, 
Two days after the hoax was exposed, the author of My Own Sweet Time, Leon Carmen, gave his response. His 1,400-word article, Wanda and Me, appeared in the Daily Telegraph, the paper that broke the story. This is a colleague reading from the article. Three years ago, my stories loitered without focus. They needed hammering into a recognisable shape. They needed framing. But mostly, they needed a charismatic narrator. Someone who'd shaken difficult beginnings, dealt with prejudice, discouragement, a few bum steers, bewilderment and doubt. Someone who refused to buckle, mope or compromise. Someone who could handle any criticism, spot the sunny side of bleak frustration, solve a problem, crack a joke and shrug off criticism. As the list of requirements grew, I had to admit that I wasn't fully qualified for the job, that autobiography as such would fall short. I'd have to invent a character whose credentials were beyond dispute. Wanda began to appear. And Carmen goes on to explain the idea behind the hoax. At about the time these ideas took shape, I was having long discussions with my old mate and agent, John Bailey. Discussions on writing in general, and literary hoaxes in particular. The idea of resurrecting the hoax tradition became a topic for conversation. The time seemed to be ripe. It's not something that can be proved, but there seemed to be a widespread notion that middle-aged people had nothing to say, especially blokes. I hadn't read the book before doing this series, so reading my own sweet time now, for me, it's the voice of Leon Carmen that keeps intruding, not Wanda's. I read the sections about Wanda mooching around Fitzroy in Melbourne as a reflection of Leon's life. Wanda, we were told, was also a songwriter. And the love of music seems to be from Leon's life too. Leon Carmen was a keyboard player in a 1970s Adelaide Vietnam War protest band called Red Angel Panic, and he went by the name of Moses Carmen. It also showed that Leon Carmen wasn't able to enter the inner life of a member of the Stolen Generations. The policies of forcibly removing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children left a lasting and intergenerational impact on First Nations peoples. Today, the book reads as not very good fiction. But the other fiction, of course, was the identity of the author. You didn't do it for money. You didn't do it for fame. No, Leon sent the prize money straight back. In 2009, Leon Carmen's literary agent, John Bailey, went on ABC TV with presenter Jennifer Byrne and answered questions about the hoax. And um, didn't do it for fame. I don't know. That might have been a factor. Yeah. Um, leaving him Why much. did you do it? It was the 50th anniversary of Ern Malley. We wanted to take a swipe at uh, the doctrine of political correctness. I'd been told by a, a producer that she wouldn't look at a script. This is a play script I submitted that had a white, middle-aged Anglo-Celtic male as its author, and I don't know how she knew I was Anglo-Celtic. I don't know what I am, and I don't care. And then, and then I started thinking, well, we, we did, that um, it's about time someone in this age of political correctness stepped forward and uh, defended the rights of the existentially challenged. I don't suppose you'd like to tell us, John, if not the names, how many other personas you've invented? Oh, probably half a dozen. And the books are out there? Uh, I can't confirm or deny that <laughs> <laughs> at this stage, no. 
you no shame? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> in fact, you believe in Wanda, don't you? She's yeah. real. Yeah, well, I think we all exist in the minds of others, and Wanda exists in my mind, and uh, Leon and I talk about her all the time as if she lives next door. She's a friend of mine. This is getting a bit Matrix for me. <laughs> hoax was damaging for Magabala Books. But what was the impact for university academic Philip Morrissey? After all, he, as an Aboriginal academic, had given the book his full support. I wasn't hurt. Um, I was, on some level, I was probably outraged that someone would do such a thing with the stolen generations when every Indigenous people knows the, the harm and the suffering that has, that has resulted from those policies. What does it mean when someone pretends to be something when, we're, when, when Indigenous people, of course, have spent the, the previous 200 years trying to speak about the truth of their experience and their history? Before the hoax, Philip had set Wanda Kulmatri's My Own Sweet Time as a text for his university students to study. But after the hoax, it stayed in the coursework, but its function was somewhat different. Then I continued to teach as an example of a, a hoax or a fraud without the necessity of the students buying the book. Literary agent John Bailey and co-conspirator of the hoax was surprised Leon Carmen couldn't get published after the hoax, even under Carmen's own name. Leon's written about five or six excellent manuscripts since then and publishers won't even speak with him. But gee, as a publisher, you'd want to look carefully at any manuscript Leon Carmen sent you, wouldn't you? Uh, not under his own name, I wouldn't think, no. No, he's a serious, he sees himself as a serious writer. Anything that he presents under his own name that's up front is, is a separate issue. That's not performance art, that's just um, straight writing. The hoax played out in two ways in the Australian media. On the one hand, it confirmed the idea that Carmen and Bailey were presenting, that the pressures of political correctness were stifling publishing. This was the position taken by many conservative commentators. But for others, the hoax achieved nothing. Literary editor of the Australian broadsheet, the Sydney Morning Herald, Susan Windham wrote, once again, they were just failed white guys. Were there any consequences for the fraud? Remember, the book won the Dobby Literary Award. It no longer operates today, but the prize manager at the time demanded the prize money be returned and also referred the matter to the police on the grounds that John Bailey had made false and misleading statements in submitting my own sweet time in the prize. But the case was dismissed. There were no consequences for John Bailey nor for Leon Carmen. Strangely, this wasn't the only scandal in 1997 involving white Australians impersonating an Aboriginal identity. Aboriginal arts groups are calling for the introduction of authenticity labels after the second Indigenous art hoax in a week. One, of course, was uh, Elizabeth Durack, a member of the Patrician Durack family, produced paintings under the name of uh, a supposed elder called Eddie Burrup. Once again, the Western Australian coastal town of Broome and gateway to the famed Kimberley region had been the centre of the controversy. 
The late West Australian artist and writer Elizabeth Durack was in her 80s at the time she created work under the guise of Indigenous elder and artist Eddie Burrup. The work was first displayed in the Kimberley Fine Art Durack Gallery in Broome. When Eddie Burrup was revealed to be an alter ego of a wealthy white woman, Aboriginal artists were incensed. But the other case that came out around that time was much more complex. Uh, the other was a case of the late Madru Colin Johnson, who made a great contribution through Indigenous literature, but of course his heritage was not Indigenous. Before his Aboriginal heritage was questioned, Mudru had been a celebrated novelist and was credited with pushing for the recognition of Australian Indigenous literature as a serious area of study. And there's an element of tragedy there, there as well, in a sense, as a, a youth, a coloured youth growing up in Perth in the 1950s and being in a reform school with, with Indigenous youth, um, you were thinking, what choices did he have in choosing identity? And with time, I think we probably have a more mellow perspective on that particular instance. These were the other controversies around at the time, which really framed the announcement of the Wanda Kulmatri hoax and led to broader questions about the authenticity of Aboriginal artists and writers. So the impacts of these frauds were felt by Indigenous artists themselves, like writer and poet Anita Heiss. I had already been published by Magabala Books and what happened then was this whole new system of uh, Aboriginal Aboriginality, proof of Aboriginality forms had to be applied. Even though they had already published me, I, I know that I had to provide a form after that to prove that I was Aboriginal, simply because this white man had done this. So we're all punished about that. Publisher Rachel Binsala regrets the impact of the hoax on Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers especially as it was the result of actions by Magabala Books, an Indigenous publishing house. In fact, its impact has been long-lasting. Many years later, one of our most forthright creators rang me and she was just on the phone calling them out and saying, you know, they want my birth certificate and they want this and don't they know us blackfellas, some of us don't have this and blah, 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 blah. And in the end, I had to laugh and say to her, I am so sorry, that's our fault. Um, so in some ways, the reason why this is happening for mob is because this happened to us and, you know, and, and this is what people are doing now to make sure that they have checks and balances in place. But it also keeps those that don't necessarily have access to birth certificates or identification um, out of the mix. To my knowledge, Leon Carmen never published another book under his name. His reputation was shot when he admitted to the hoax. Literary agent John Bailey published an account of the drama in his book, Daylight Corroboree, a first-hand account of the Wanda Kulmatri affair. But really, the only mark they left was the hoax. Does Philip Morrissey think it could happen again? No, I think it's just too hard. Um, if it did, then there'd be some gross negligence uh, on the part of a publisher, I think, you know, you must be careful. You have no options now because you're publishing with the view to selling your, the, the work to readers. It's a relief to think this type of hoax is unlikely to happen today. But Anita Heiss says publishing houses are still lacking in-house diversity. We still do not have First Nations editors in mainstream publishing houses. Now there's just one First Nations decision maker in a major publishing house. 
It's Anita Heiss. I've just become, I think, the first Aboriginal publisher in a mainstream publishing house with Simon & Schuster. Anita also says that the expectations of readers have changed for the better. We have a different readership today who want more works, authentic stories and voices and experiences by First Nations peoples. You might have noticed that the 1990s were a hotbed for fake identities in Australian art and writing life. There was Helen Dale, who assumed a Ukrainian identity as Helen Demidenko. There was the case of Aboriginal artist Eddie Burrup, who turned out to be a white landowner, Elizabeth Durack. And, of course, the Wanda Kulmatri hoax. And if we're thinking about this time, Australia was reckoning with the end of the White Australia policy the impact of the stolen generations and the embrace of multicultural Australia. It was a time when right-wing politician and One Nation founder Pauline Hanson was first elected to Parliament on an anti-multicultural platform and it was when Conservative Prime Minister John Howard's culture wars were ignited over the symbols and traditions of old Australia. In all of these cases, there were white Australians who felt aggrieved that their Anglo-Celtic background was excluding them from participating in our cultural life. But when you look back on the writers being published and winning awards, it's hard to see why they felt so aggrieved. The Miles Franklin Literary Award, for instance, was associated with writers with names like Rodney Hall, Kate Grenville, Alex Miller, Leon Carmen and John Bailey submitted their manuscript to Magabala Books, an Indigenous publishing house. It was their job to consider books by Indigenous writers. What did these fakes, frauds and pranksters achieve? They broke the trust of readers and publishers alike. They caused embarrassment, pain and hurt, and they made publishing harder to enter for some writers. And ultimately, the egg was on their face too. In almost all cases, it ended their writing careers. This is the final episode in Series 1 of Fakes and Frauds, the book scandals that rocked Australia, produced and presented by me, Sarah Lestrange. This series is made and brought to you by ABC RN on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Thanks to the ABC Research Library and to book show host Claire Nichols. The sound engineer is Timothy James. The executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. If you enjoyed Fakes and Frauds, please tell your friends and family to search for the book show and follow us on the ABC Listen app or online. <laughs>